You know, it can be easy uh, for those of us who have been around the Scriptures for so long, maybe in some cases for those who have grown up being familiar with the Scriptures, it can be easy to forget how blessed and how unique the Scriptures are and how privileged we are to have the Old Testament and New Testament text and we get to dive into it and study it week after week. We get to read it at home personally. We get to hear it preached publicly. And we could become so familiar with it over time that we could forget, or at least not be as mindful of how precious this word is. When you take a crash course, however, in the craziness of, say, other writings that purport to be authoritative, take, for instance, some of the so-called Gospels that purport to be Gospels, you might find yourself with a fan-to-flame appreciation for the text that is before you. As I've told the students recently... In some of our Friday night meetings, it was uh, some years back that I was first introduced to the Gospel of Judas. National Geographic, if my writing back in 2013 recounts the events well, National Geographic had a page on its website that stated that the Gospel of Judas was one of the most significant finds of the last century, that it was one that could challenge what is believed about the betrayal of Judas and the story of Jesus. Now, by the way, a little bit of a side note, you always want to be aware come Resurrection Sunday time, because whether it's a History Channel or whether it's National Geographic, it's not uncommon to hear about a so-called new find. That's not a new find at all, and I'll show you why the Gospel of Judas wasn't a new find in a lot of ways. Well, besides the fact that the original document, I'm using the Gospel of Judas right now as an example, is said to have been written before 180 A.D., somewhere between 130 and 170 A.D., which is a big problem, right? Because Judas was dead for about 100 years by that time. So the so-called Gospel of Judas wasn't even written by Judas. Besides the fact that there is a uh, scarcity of manuscript evidence for it, and there are late manuscripts that have been found as a result of the, of the findings, which is, it's, it's late. Last I checked, it was around 5th or 6th century. It's uh, about 500 years after Judas was alive. Um, besides the fact that this wasn't new information, by the way, in the Gospel of Judas, it was actually just old heresy. Irenaeus, one of the early church um, uh, fathers, as he's often referred to, composed a work entitled Against Heresies, in which he identified the so-called Gospel of Judas by name and called it fictitious history. And besides all that, if you just read through it, well, I'm not commending it to you for that purpose, but if you were, you would find a lot of crazy things in it. You would find that Judas is essentially made out to be the good guy. That he gets the secret revelation that Jesus is essentially telling him, you're going to do me a solid, you're going to make sure that I die. There's a lot of strange stuff in the Gospel of Judas. You have um, the so-called Jesus in the so-called Gospel of Judas repeatedly laughing. It's kind of awkward. At his disciples and or Judas. Kind of happens quite a few times as you go through it. And in the false Gospel of uh, Judas, the false Jesus in that Gospel, tells Judas that the human that bears him will suffer, but he won't. And then he tells Judas... But you'll do more than all of them because you'll sacrifice the human who bears me. 
And then he goes on, you know, earlier he says, tomorrow they'll torture the one who bears me. So you have in the Gospel of Judas, just something that doesn't line up with the Scriptures at all. You have this weird statement as though like Jesus, or the Christ Eon, as was purported by a lot of Gnostic heresies, was in the man Jesus. And you're like, that doesn't line up with the Scriptures at all. In the Scriptures, we know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we know that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the second person of the Trinity was eternally God, the Son of God, and He became man while never ceasing to be God. You start going through some of these so-called Gospels, and you find a lot of crazy things that make you appreciate what you have in the Scriptures. Not to go through a whole study, but I'll just give you some of the examples I gave the students. Uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas, not to be confused with the false gospel of Thomas. They're both false. But there's the gospel of Thomas and there's the infancy gospel of Thomas. Um, the gospel of Thomas, by the way, has one of the craziest endings of any false gospel. It's 114 sayings and it ends with um, quite a doozy. Uh, the last verse of the false gospel of Thomas reads like this. Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, false Jesus and false gospel of Thomas, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman, every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there's nothing in the Old Testament or the New Testament alike that would suggest that. Can you imagine? You know, you've heard the voice of Jesus in the text of Scripture. You've seen Peter in the text of Scripture. You've seen Peter when he's strong. You've seen Peter when he's weak. And you can't even imagine Peter saying something like this. Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. That's kind of stuff you find out there in in these so-called Gospels. Well, Infancy Gospel of Thomas, it's a different false gospel. There's 18 short chapters in it. In chapter 4 of the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, it opens like this. After that, again, he went through the village, speaking of Jesus when he was a child. And a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. You've seen that kind of thing happen to either your children or to you, right? Someone's bumped into you, bumped into your shoulder. And what did you do when someone bumped into you? Well, you probably didn't do what the false Jesus of the false infancy gospel of Thomas did. According to that, Jesus was provoked and said to him, You shall not finish your course. And immediately he fell down and died. The boy that bumped into Jesus. Parents of the boy end up coming to um, Joseph and Mary, as the account goes on, and basically identify Jesus as the slayer of children. (laughs) In the, uh, another writing, the first gospel of the infancy narrative of Jesus Christ, there's a story of a girl who goes into a parlor. And that's how it's accounted in that text. And there were some women lamenting because their brother had turned into a mule. And as I told the kids on that Friday night, um, don't you hate it when that happens? <laughs> and one minute you have your brother, next minute he turns into a mule. What are you going to do? So he turned into a mule. They said, and the women said, hey, don't worry about it. Well, one girl, actually. She said, don't worry. I was leprous, but I sprinkled myself with water of this baby Jesus, and I washed in it, and now I'm all better. And then the ladies got really excited, so they go find Mary. They tell Mary the story, and then she brings baby Jesus over to the, uh, the brother who became a mule. And um, she had Jesus sit on the mule, and the mule turned into a boy again. And they were all so happy. What did they decide to do? They decided to worship Mary. That's what they decided to do. I could go on. There's other examples. There's the gospel of, false gospel of Peter craziness, where you have uh, the resurrection account in that gospel, including a cross 
walking out of a tomb as well. I don't know, it's pretty crazy that you have a cross kind of coming out of the tomb. Is it hopping? We don't know. But this cross has the ability to speak. There's a voice heard from heaven in the false gospel of Peter, and the cross, wouldn't you know it, answers the question. Why am I saying that? Because when you survey, whether it's false gospels out there or whether it's other so-called holy books, the apparent lack of consistency or the falsehood that is contained therein is pretty evident for those of you who have gone through the scriptures. And you say, this, the voice in this text does not sound like the voice in this. The consistency and the logic and the coherence of the scriptures across 66 books, written across hundreds of years, it's amazing and it witnesses to the veracity of the Word of God, the truthfulness of the Word of God, and most ultimately, the origin of the Word of God. And that's what separates the Word of God from all of these other holy books, so-called, or false gospels. It's that the Word of God has its origin from God, as we're going to see in our text. That when we come to the Scriptures, we are actually learning from God Himself as He's inspired the Word that we are studying. It's amazing. And the Word of God has within it, uniquely, life-giving power. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. The living Word of God. Well, in our passage, as we continue to study through 2 Timothy, we see Paul now set forward some bibliology. We see a little bit of the doctrine of Scripture coming through the Apostle Paul's writing here. After referencing how Timothy was different, he was a contrast to the false teachers that Paul had previously been describing. And one of the reasons why Timothy was different, to bring us right up to just about where we are today, we see in verse 15, Timothy was acquainted with the Scriptures from the earliest days of his life. And Paul identified the Scriptures there as the sacred writings. And he said that those sacred writings are able, they have power to make one wise unto the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation which is through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So it leads, where we've been leads seamlessly into where we are this morning. So we begin... In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where we read, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay. Well, first let's just establish how does this fit with what just came immediately before. Well, in the previous verse, Paul said that the sacred writings are able to make one wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And now he's expanding upon the Scripture's origin and the Scripture's function. So he mentioned the Scriptures by identifying them as the sacred writings in verse 15. Now he's expanding upon um, the Scripture's origin and function. After all, if the sacred writings are able to make one wise unto salvation, an underlying question that needs to be answered is, well, where did they come from? Where did the sacred writings come from? And secondly, if the sacred writings are able to make one wise unto salvation, is that all they do? Or is there more to their ministry and more to what they do? This verse answers those questions. So first note, Paul wrote, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is inspired by God. Now some think that when Paul says all Scripture here, that he has the Old Testament Scriptures in view and not the Old Testament and New Testament Scriptures in view. I would disagree with that assessment. I would say I believe the Apostle Paul has both the Old and New Testament Scriptures in view. And the reason why I say that is at least twofold. First, 
When you go back to 1 Timothy, which was written before 2 Timothy, right? Well, well that's, that's, <laughs> that's a revelation right there. When you go back to 1 Timothy, which was written before 2 Timothy, you see Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, say the following. He says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. That's verse 17. And then he proceeded to say this in the following verse. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, an Old Testament book. But then he proceeds to say, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's not a quote from an Old Testament book. That's a quote from a New Testament book written by a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, namely Luke. That citation comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So in 1 Timothy, Paul is identifying both Deuteronomy, an Old Testament book, and the Gospel of Luke, written by a contemporary who was alive during the days of the Apostle Paul, as Scripture. So that's one reason when we come to now, Paul saying all Scripture is inspired by God, I would say he's got both Old Testament and New Testament in view because in 1 Timothy, he referenced Luke's Gospel as Scripture. And secondly, that may explain why the different identification is used here as opposed to in verse 15 where we see sacred writings. So Paul is likely using that phrase, sacred writings, that identification, sacred writings, to refer to the Old Testament. So Timothy, when he was an infant, he, was, you know, he grew up on, you could say, the Old Testament writings. But now, Paul expands and he says, all Scripture, pasographe, referring to both Old and New Testament writings. With that being said, um, this gives us an opportunity to be reminded of how New Testament writers saw contemporaries as writing Scripture. So, when Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, all Scripture is inspired by God, it's worth us taking a moment to note how other New Testament writers saw other New Testament writers as writing Scripture. Take Peter, for instance. Peter looked at Paul's writings, and he knew that Paul's writings were Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, we read the following. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So Peter looks at Paul's writings and identifies his writings as Scripture. Paul himself knew that he was an authoritative messenger of God. He knew that the gospel that he preached was not according to man and that he didn't receive it from man, but he received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul said to the Corinthians, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. And just as the Old Testament scriptures would be read publicly in the Jewish synagogue, the expectation was that New Testament epistles would be read publicly to the assembly of the local church. We see examples of this expectation in Colossians 4.16, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. 
Jude, who wrote Scripture, told his readers in verse 17 of that one chapter epistle, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus calling his writers to remember the authoritative teaching of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation the following, in the opening verses of the book of Revelation, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. I say all that to say, whether it's John looking at his writing when he's writing Revelation, for instance, or whether it's Peter looking at Paul's writings, or Paul looking at Luke's writings, the Gospel of Luke, you have examples of Paul and other New Testament writers looking at contemporaries and saying, yep, they wrote Scripture. This wasn't some um, analysis that was done by a future generation to say, these writings are Scripture because we deem them to be Scripture. No, you had people in the first century looking at contemporaries and saying, no, he's writing Scripture. He's an authoritative messenger of God. This writing is the Word of God. Now, what did Paul say about the Scripture? He said, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, Paul was not using the word inspired in the way that some people sometimes use it when they speak of being motivated or spurred on. Um, It's been said of Bach, for instance, that musicians from all genres draw inspiration from his pieces. Um, This is not the kind of inspiration that's being spoken of here. The word for inspiration, or the word for inspired by God here in our text, is the word theonoustos. Theonoustos. It literally means God breathed. So all scripture, pasagraphe, all scripture is God breathed. In other words, all scripture is, if you will, the result of God's creative breath. Now somebody might ask at this point, okay, well then how does that tie together with man's agency? Because it isn't like the scripture just, you know, descended from the clouds, like God said, you know, let, let there be Scripture, and all of a sudden like, it comes down from the sky. No, man's agency is part of the way in which God made sure. Um, man's agency was part and parcel of how God brought the Scriptures to us. Um, Peter makes it clear that Scripture and prophecy didn't come by the will of man. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we're told, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So in other words, what's in the Scriptures isn't like you know, Paul's great thoughts for you know, how to live the best way you could live. It didn't come as a result of man's own interpretation or man's will. He went on to write in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, no prophecy ever came forth or was brought forth by the will of man. He went on to say, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. That word for moved right there is a Greek word that speaks of being carried along. It's used in Acts 27 uh, a couple of times to speak of a ship that was moved along by the wind. So the picture is that holy men spoke 
and or wrote as it related to Scripture as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how they spoke or wrote as authoritative messengers of God. So the idea was that God so superintended the writings of these men that while their personalities and vocabulary and writing style was intact, the finished product was the result of God's creative breath. So if you want to know how Scripture came to be about and you want to know what Scripture's origin is, you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And you find that holy men spoke or wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and God ensured that the finished product was the result of God's creative breath, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, having addressed the inspiration of Scripture, um, that all Scripture is God-breathed, Paul proceeded to speak of how it was and is profitable. All Scripture is not only God-breathed, it is also profitable. In other words, it is beneficial. It is useful. All Scripture is profitable. Um, This is one of the reasons why I've so enjoyed, particularly in times past and perhaps by the grace of God we'll be able to do more so in the future, uh, teaching through Old Testament books. Because I think teaching through Old Testament books verse by verse is a great reminder that no scripture text is off limits. Oh, you don't teach publicly on that. You can teach publicly on you know, other stuff, like New Testament stuff, but don't teach publicly about you know, some of those Old Testament texts which are, which are you know, hard to understand or, or whatever it might be. Um, all scripture is God-breathed and all of it is profitable. You're like, all of it is profitable? What about the genealogies? The genealogies are profitable. You go into the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, and all of a sudden you see this kind of refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you're reminded of the wages of sin being death. And you see that in the genealogy that's set forward in Genesis chapter 5. Death entered the world through sin, and you get a genealogy that illustrates to you how men die as a result of sin. What about the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3? And you could look in those genealogies and you could see the grace of God when you see some of the individuals who are listed therein. You could say that about any individual at the end of the day because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when you see some of the individuals who are included in the genealogy in Matthew 1, for instance, you're just reminded that God is a gracious God. And the genealogies, don't forget, also remind us that God is truthful. He promised that his son would be of the line of Judah, that the scepter wouldn't depart from Judah, that it would be through the seed of Abraham that the nations would be blessed, that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David and he would be a descendant of David. And the genealogies are reminding us of that, improving that. So I just say that to say, let's be reminded, all Scripture, all of it, it's God-breathed and all of it is profitable. All of it is profitable. By the time we get to the end of verse 17, we'll be reminded of how profitable it is. Now, this is not the only place that speaks to the profitability of the Scripture. There's so many other ones. Uh, It would be a joy to go through it, maybe in a forthcoming class on the doctrine of Scripture, we can. You can go to Psalm 19, where we um, started this day in our opening Scripture reading, and you would see that um, the law of the Lord, you got all these different identifications in Psalm 19 for the Scriptures. The law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the statutes of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh, and so on. And you see some of the benefits of Scripture right there in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. That the law of Yahweh is perfect and it converts or refreshes the soul. 
that the testimony of Yahweh is sure. It makes wise the simple. That the statutes of Yahweh are right and they rejoice the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. That fear of Yahweh begotten by the ministry of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God. The judgments of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward." So the profitability of Scripture is not limited to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You can go through Psalm 119, not just Psalm 19, and you see other ways in which Scripture is profitable. But we'll set our attention on the description that's found here. First, the Apostle Paul noted that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. I want to remind you of what I said uh, some weeks back. Notice, first on the list, is Doctrine. Doctrine. When the early church devoted themselves to certain practices, um, breaking bread together, praying, and, and things that are listed in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the first thing that's listed is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. When the apostle Paul recounted what Timothy had followed in Paul's own life, the first thing he mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 was doctrine. You have followed my doctrine. And now when we're seeing reasons... To understand the scripture as being profitable, the first thing that's listed in this verse is that the scripture is profitable for doctrine. The word that's used here for doctrine essentially means teaching or instruction. So the scripture provides God-given teaching on a variety of subjects. Theology proper as it relates to who God the Father is. Bibliology, anthropology, Christology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, Christian living, eschatology, heaven and hell, and much, much more. So you want to see, you want to have an understanding in your mind that doctrine is profitable. So scripture is profitable for doctrine, so you understand doctrine is profitable. Because again, as I've said to you before, sometimes in modern day Christianity, not that it's a new problem, I'm sure it's been around for a while, you have people say, enough with the doctrine, let's just get to the, to, to, to the nuts and bolts of Christian living. Let's get about the business that God has called us to do. All this doctrine can just be distracting, it could weigh us down. Let's get about the business of loving people and serving people and doing stuff. And what you want to understand is that doctrine is the fuel that drives that. Because if we don't have sound doctrine, everything else that we do is going to be off in some way. If we don't have sound doctrine about who God is, how can we worship God in spirit and in truth? Because we'll be worshiping a conception of God that doesn't line up with who God is. This is of the utmost importance. We remember that Jesus said, you see language like this in John 8 and in John 13, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus using language there that the Lord, that Yahweh uses to identify himself in Exodus 3.14. That's a proposition. Unless you get this proposition right, unless you see me as ego, a me, unless you see me as the I am that I am, unless you get that, you will die in your sins. If we have a, a wrong view of the Holy Spirit, if we think the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person, then we're going to have a wrong view of God. If we think the Holy Spirit is a force, then we're going to have a, a God who is two persons and one in essence, as opposed to a God who is one in essence and three persons. We know the Holy Spirit's a person. He can be grieved. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He teaches and he instructs. He said to the church, set aside for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. You see that in the opening uh, verses of Acts 13. Sound doctrine helps in so many ways. I just want to drive this home because I want you to see how this helps, right? I mentioned to you last week the example of that young man, Chris Yoon, who was saying how the need of this hour, more so than ever, is prophecy. And one of the questions that I asked was, is that right? Is he right when he makes that statement? And if you believe that he's right when he says that, what will that lead to by way of behavior in your life? Because what he is saying is diametrically opposed to what 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is saying. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is saying that Scripture, God-breathed Scripture is profitable so that the man of God might be complete for every good work. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. So if He's right, I need to go chasing something else outside of this because I need that now more than ever. But if the Scripture is right, which it is, it is sufficient to meet my needs to be complete and perfectly equipped for what God has called me and God has called you to do. That's how important doctrine is. You can see doctrine as kind of the building blocks of a sound Christian worldview through which you're going to analyze so many things. So whether it relates to the history of this world or whether it relates to economics, whatever it might be, you need sound doctrine. Whether it relates to who Jesus is, whether it relates to the sufficiency of the cross, you and I need sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is so important. Just even just, uh, just to make it practical, because sometimes people will um, want something practical. <laughs> yeah, okay, doctrine, yes, but give me something practical. I want to give you something practical as it relates to doctrine. Think of one of the most practical steps that we could take as believers would be to pursue humility and avoid pride. God hates pride. He hates it. We see that very clearly in Proverbs chapter 6. He hates pride. God esteems humility. So what do you practically do to pursue humility and stay away from pride? You, like, you sell all your possessions. You make sure that you, like, you, know, you don't shave your face and you make yourself look you know, not as well kept as you could. I'm going I'm to do everything I can to be really humble. I'm going to speak low. I'm going to wear clothes that make me look not nice. And I'm going to be really humble. That's not what you do to become humble. Then you become proud that you took so many steps to pursue humility and other people didn't take the steps that you took. What do you do to pursue humility practically? You expose yourself to, you pursue sound doctrine. Because as you study the Word of God, you see how high and holy God is. And as a result of learning more about God, you are humbled. As you see how far short you and I fall of the perfect standard that God demands, the standard that was met by Jesus Christ, you and I are humbled. So one of the most important practical steps we could ever take is to pursue Humility and forsake pride. And that comes most fundamentally as a result of studying the Word of God and the Spirit of God illuminating that truth to our hearts. Sound doctrine. We do well to keep reminding one another that there is a connection between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, between sound doctrine and sound living, between, if you will, creed and conduct. Sound doctrine fuels um, so much that is so important in the Christian life. Um, 
Second, we notice the Apostle Paul wrote that all Scripture is profitable for reproof. All Scripture is profitable for reproof. Now this word speaks to how the Word of God reproves sinful ways of thinking and living, convicting the believer of sin that is exposed. So it's essentially through the Word of God that our wrong ways of thinking, our wrong ways of behaving are identified. The Word of God reproves us. It's part of a gracious piercing that the writer of Hebrews essentially identified in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It's a work that I would argue prepares the way for what the uh, Scripture does next, as listed in our next description. But I just want to illustrate this for a moment. Now, in my car, when we would have the navigation on, there was a time when you could hear the navigation speaking uh, through the speakers in the car. And you probably are very familiar with those kind of instances when you go the wrong way and the navigation says something like, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. And then the navigation, sometimes if you don't listen right away, it'll keep telling you, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. Now, somehow along the way, I, maybe I did it and I didn't know. Maybe my wife did it for me because I asked her to do it. Somehow, it's on mute right now. So we get the, nav- the navigation is there, but it's not calling out to us like it was before. It's still there. It's still saying it. It's just been muted. And I think in a lot of ways, that's how it could be with believers who become so familiar with the Word of God that we could engage in it. And we're not hearing the reproof that is coming from it. Maybe at some point in your life, you were reading the Word of God and the Word of God was reproving you and you loved it. It's as though the Word of God told you, make a U-turn. Make a U-turn. No, no, don't think like that. Uproot that bitterness. No, you shouldn't be going there. No, you shouldn't be going there with them. That's a wrong way of thinking. You want to dump that. You want to take thoughts captive, make them obedient to Christ, and then all of a sudden we became familiar with it and we're just reading it. Like, I just don't get reproved anymore. I mean, I have come to a place that I am not perfect. No, I know I'm not perfect, but I've come to a place where I just don't hear reproofs anymore. That is a bad place for any of us to be. We don't want to be there because one of the functions of Scripture is that we would constantly be, regularly be, reproved in a loving, fatherly, gracious way as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, yet hearing from our God saying, no, no, don't think like that. Don't do that. Say you're sorry for that. (laughs) Well, the Word of God not only uh, reproves us, it is um, profitable also for correction. It is profitable for correction. Um, Now in the English, you might think this word is essentially the same thing as the previous word. And there is a measure of overlap between the words, but this word that's used here has a sense of restoring. A sense of bringing about improvement or setting something in proper order. This word was used in the field of medicine. So you can imagine someone having a broken arm and it being set right and put in its right place. And that's how these terms work together. The Scripture not only shows us our sin and reproves us, but then the Scripture is the means by which we are graciously corrected. It sets us straight, if you will. So not only shows us the issues that we have and the sin that we've committed, but then by the Word of God we are set straight, if you will. It restores us, it refreshes us, it corrects us. And then finally, Paul wrote that the Scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. And the word for instruction that's used here is a word that was used with respect to the proper upbringing of children. 
The Word of God essentially trains and disciplines a believer like a good parent does a child, providing education and discipline in righteousness for the purpose of right living. These are the functions of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. Now I just want you to note, so if you want to get a good picture of what a walk with God looks like, this is a large part of what it's going to look like. It's going to look like you hearing from God through the text of Scripture and learning your worldview, being aligned to the Word of God. You understanding who God is, who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are within the one true God. It's going to be you having a Christian worldview. You're learning doctrine. It's going to be you being corrected. It's going to be you being told by the Word of God, don't do that. Say you're sorry for that. Go make this right with that person and so on. It's going to be you being corrected, not only reproved, but corrected, restored. And you're going to see yourself further conformed to the image of Christ and you're going to feel like a child graciously instructed by a loving father instructed in righteousness this is what's next for you my son or my daughter I have good works for you to walk in and as you read the scripture it's as though that light is shining on your path and you continue to walk down it with God holding your hand as it were through the text of scripture that brings us to the last verse of chapter 3 it's essentially the purpose uh, statement that Paul gives um, connected here to verse 16. Verse 17 reads, So that the man of God may be adequate, better stated, complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, a couple of notes here. Uh, this verse begins with a conjunction in the Greek. Uh, it's a henna clause, which basically means it's a purpose statement. So you got the Scripture's origin and function in verse 16, and now Paul is setting, forth, setting forward an immediate purpose for what the Scripture does. It's so that, most immediately within the context, so that the man of God may be adequate. More about that word adequate in a moment. Man of God is an identification that Paul used for Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. You go through the Old Testament, and that identification, man of God, was usually used with, a prophetic, with respect to a prophetic emissary, a messenger of God, an authoritative ambassador of God's truth. Here, it would apply most immediately to somebody like Timothy, or somebody who stands in the position of teaching with a responsibility to accurately reflect God's word and will through the teaching of the scriptures. So that's where it would be most immediately applied. So that the man of God might be adequate. Now it's interesting because in English that word adequate can mean sufficient. It could mean that, but it could also mean like okay. <laughs> like one of the definitions that you would find in dictionary.com for the English word adequate is um, you know, being okay, being uh, an example they give is being adequate is not good enough. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. Adequate means within this context sufficient. The Greek word that's used here, which is why you'll see it in other translations like the New King James translation, means complete. So it means that the man of God might be sufficient, adequate in the sense of sufficient. He has found everything that he needs to do what God has called him to do within the Word of God. So that the man of God might be complete. Equipped, you could even say fully equipped, for every good work. Douglas Milne said, The real test of knowledge of the Scriptures is our productivity level in doing good works. So, a couple of notes here. As I mentioned last week, and I want to mention it again, 
if we're going to have a right view of the Word of God, we need to see the Word of God as not only inerrant, not only infallible. We need to see the Word of God as sufficient. As sufficient. If the Word of God is sufficient enough for the man of God to be complete for every good work that God has called him to do, what is sufficient for the pastor's equipping is sufficient for the flock's feeding. And if the Word of God is sufficient for the calling of ministry so that the man of God might be complete, it is sufficient for the flock that God purchased with the blood of His Son that His people might be complete. So what is a good practical next step for us in light of that? Well, I would say, um, like the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 97, by God's grace may He work in us to say, Oh, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. May we find ourselves like the Psalm 1 man who meditates on the Word of God day and night because he loves it. I think that's, I think that's a good um, application for us. Um, someone might say, well, I just don't have time to read the Word of God. I mean, there's so many things come up and I just don't have time to read the Word of God. I want to encourage you in, in a nice way and something that um, you've probably said to yourself, I know I've said it to myself, there's time. There's always time for the Word of God. Um, years ago, I jotted down this um, illustration I heard. I would give uh, credit to whomever I heard it from, but there was someone, jotted it down in my Evernote, who spoke about the, uh, the depths of the Depression in New York City in 1933. And uh, talking about how in New York City, for instance, there were so many who were impoverished. And then um, the movie King Kong came out. And then when the movie King Kong, King Kong came out, impoverished New Yorkers were able to spend $89,931 to see King Kong in four days and set an indoor attendance record. That might seem like a lot of money to you, but remember, inflation could do a lot to, <laughs> to money, and $89,000 was a lot back then. And the idea was, even though people were so impoverished, they found a way to get out and see King Kong in record numbers to the degree where indoor attendance records were broke. The principle being, if you want something bad enough, you'll find a way to get to it, provided you can. And the Word of God, brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, if you are not in it regularly, make it a commitment. Not something that you're doing under, under some sort of legalistic mindset. But wrought by grace, commit to being in the Word of God. Expecting God to speak to you through it. Teaching you doctrine, reproving you, correcting you, and instructing you in righteousness' sake. Um, and finally, I just want to remind you of the function that Paul listed in verse 15. So now we have four functions in verse 16. But don't forget, there was another function that was mentioned in verse 15. And what was that? That the Scripture is able to make one wise unto salvation. So for those who are in Christ, I encourage you to pursue being in the Word of God, being instructed by it, nourished by it, giving yourself to it. And for those who perhaps have not come to Christ, please know faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ, by the Word of God. Give yourself to the Word of God. Hear God speak. Let God make the case that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that He promised who would be the only way for sins to be forgiven. Paul said it to the church of Corinth. Christ died for our sins, what? According to the Scriptures. 
and He was buried and He was raised according to the Scriptures. God's plan of redemption was set forth in the Scriptures. It's as though the outline was given in the Old Testament and it's as though the fulfillment of that outline was perfectly matched in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And it's the Scriptures that are able to make you wise into salvation, helping you see that you have sinned against the Holy God. And that you cannot keep His law perfectly and you have sinned against them. It's the Scriptures that make you wise unto salvation, seeing that salvation does not come by the works of the law. It does not come by good work doing or law keeping. In the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, it has always been by grace through faith. Whether you're Abraham or whether you're Paul, it's always been that way. The Scriptures make you wise unto salvation. The Scriptures show you where that faith needs to be placed. By the grace of God, you look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you see Him as the only way. You see Him as the Son of God who died for your sins. You see Him as the Son of God who was raised for your justification. You see Him as the way, the truth, and the life. And even as John writes in John chapter 1, to as many as received Him, He gave them the right to be called children of God. For some... This could be the day where a person goes from being at enmity with God and leaving this place to being identified as a child of God through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that You have given us a lamp that is meant to guide us through our sojourning here in this life. And we thank You, Heavenly Father, that uh, You have not only given us this lamp, but to all who are in Christ, You've given us the person of Your Holy Spirit who takes the Scriptures and illuminates them to our hearts and minds. We thank You, Heavenly Father, and we just ask that You would continue to work in us so that we would receive Your teaching and Your instruction, that we would hear Your voice through the text, reproving us, and correcting and restoring us and instructing us in how we ought to live for Your glory. Father, may You find us with an increasing confidence in the sufficiency of Your Word, and as a result, may our affections for it grow, and may we give ourselves to it by Your grace increasingly. And Father, for anyone who would not be at that place, uh, that verse 15 speaks of, perhaps this day, Lord, Your Word will be that lamp, as it were, to them that shows them Jesus Christ. Shine the light upon Jesus Christ. Even as You shine the light of Your Word in our hearts and You show us our sinfulness and our need for reconciliation with You, Father, where it might be needed, may You open up eyes to the sufficiency of the One that You promised would come, who would stand in the place of sinners and be the substitutional sacrifice for all who'd look to Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.